Before we get started, I just wanted to thank you guys for coming back for another episode of The Places You'll Go. If you enjoy the podcast and want to get involved in the community or take a guess at our weekly photo teasers, like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ThePlacesYG. If you have your own amazing stories to tell us, feedback about the show, or ideas for upcoming episodes, feel free to email us at theplacesyg at gmail.com or visit anchor.fm forward slash theplacesyg to leave us a text or voice message. Finally, if you want more people to find out about how awesome this show is, follow us on Spotify and Overcast and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Now, without further ado, enjoy this week's episode. This is a Wandering Hippies production. Here we are. We're back. It's spooky time. That's right. It is spooky time. You're listening to this on September 24th, which is the first week of the six weeks of Halloween. It's here. We've got our spooky candle lit. Yeah, my ghoul friend. Her ghoul friend candle. I'm drinking Oktoberfest because what else would you drink? At spooky time than Oktoberfest? Uh, Stone Hazy IPA is what I'm drinking. Oh, okay. That's what she's drinking. Yeah. She's an uncultured swine. (laughs) I'll shove your Oktoberfest up your keister. (laughs) Anyway. We've got the light off in here. So it really just sets the ambiance to what's happening. And we've been waiting for this basically, well, since we came up with the idea. But. Yes. We've been waiting for Halloween. Since November 1st of 2020. You're absolutely right. (laughs) Hopefully we're able to live up to the hype that I created for this season. But together I'm confident that we can kind of come close. I hope so. So obviously you downloaded this episode, which means that you already know where we chose to open the six weeks of Halloween. Halloween. And what paranormal, true crime, travel podcasts, whatever we are, would be worth its metal if they didn't do an episode on Salem. Am I right? You're right. I'm just saying. I don't know if we're worth our metal, but obviously we're coming out of the gate with possibly the most iconic city in North America when somebody thinks about Halloween. You're right. So many movies have been set there. Uh, Let's see if we can name a few. Halloween Town. Halloween um, Town was set there? Yeah. Well, it was filmed there. I don't know. I guess I don't know if it was set in Salem, but it was filmed in Salem. That is the best Salem Town Square. That's that's the square in Halloween Town, and then uh, the Sanderson sisters. I can't think of the name. Hocus Pocus. Hocus Pocus is set in Salem. Is the one with Sandra Bullock set in Salem? Um, I don't know. They make you feel like it is. What's the name of that? Practical Magic. Practical Magic. Why can't I? We've watched that so many times, and I could not think of the name. It is just such a. Feel oh, good it's a fantastic movie. movie. We watch that all times of the year, just when the whim strikes us, you know? Yeah. Same with Nightmare Before Christmas. You can fight on, yeah. fight me on this. It could be a Halloween movie. It could be a Christmas movie. But I say it's, it's also both of them. And it's also a 4th of July movie, in my opinion. Yeah. It's all year round <laughs> movie. It's an Easter movie. Yeah. They have an Easter door. Yeah, the Easter bunny is in it. They literally. have a turkey door. Yeah. Get over yourself. Jesus. Jesus. I'm not <laughs> fighting you in this one, Okay. You guys can just step back. Yeah, just step off for a second. Step off! Anyway, let's get witchy in Salem, shall we? That's Lakin. And that's Chance. And these are the six weeks of Halloween. (laughs) The places you go, podcast. The places you 
<laughs> We're back. And let me know what you guys thought of that intro music. Uh, thanks to freesound.org and some uh, royal, not ro- royalty free is the wrong term, but uh, creative commons uh, sounds that are on freesounds.org that I will throw the link in the description of this episode for. So if you want to see more about them or whatever, but I used those to create that. And I hope you guys liked it. I love it. I think it's so cool. I am flattering myself, I'm sure, but Lakin really liked it too, I think. I did. Yeah. yeah, I did. So let me know if you guys like that, but we're sticking with that. That's the intro music for the six weeks of Halloween. So you're going to hear that for at least the next six episodes. Just that's the way it's going to be. Even if you don't like it, sorry. Yeah, too bad. You're just going to have to hit the, uh, if you just literally just hit the forward button twice, you'll be through it. It's fine. Well, don't tell them. <laughs> they need to listen. <laughs> So we came so close to visiting Salem, but work interfered. So we're just going to have to visit vicariously through this episode, I guess. Hey! (laughs) Let's address the elephant in the room. What exactly are we going to be doing with the six weeks of Halloween? We've hyped it up. We've talked about it. We haven't truly explained what we're doing. This is going to be a long episode. That's the way it is because I'm going to explain this and also because Salem. Anyway, I know that I have given everybody kind of a minor rundown of what the plan is, but I haven't really got into a a deeper dive into it. And I figured now is as good a time as any. We are kind of going to kind of cut down the recommendations for these episodes because it's not quite as focused on the travel side of things. We're kind of focusing a little more on the haunting and the scary side of things. And even our recommendations are going to, when we can include some spooky, scary stuff. Hell yeah. These episodes are really supposed to be more about hauntings, monsters, chilling lore that some of these locations that we've selected are known for. Not some of that. All of these are known for everyone that we've picked out is known for something, uh, terrifying or chilling or just generally strange and i think you guys are gonna love them because these are all locations that we really enjoy or some of the locations are even more modeled around things that we wanted to do stories about and hadn't found a good opportunity to go to that location yet and here we are yeah so here we are yeah uh when we can we're going to include eyewitness accounts or established lore about the stories uh, that we are covering, but we're probably also going to take some artistic liberties when telling our tales because of the nature of this kind of thing. It's cool to find firsthand accounts when you can, but some of these things, it is uh, difficult, if not impossible, to find a firsthand account of. It's mm-hmm. just, it's all like 15th hand accounts uh, I, in one yeah. paragraph. One paragraph of a 15th hand account about something that happened uh, 30, 40 years ago. I did find one TripAdvisor review, Review. and I was like, oh, okay, like this is giving me a little bit more information, but it's still. Still just not enough to write a whole story on. Yeah, and like, do I believe this person? I'm going to, yeah. I I mean, some things are far-fetched, but most of the time, I'm probably going to believe them. Honestly, that's also, that's the nature of giving a first-hand account of anything, 
is take it for what it's worth. We don't know if they are telling the truth or not. You never know. That's how lore starts. That's how legends and myths and tall tales begin in the first place. So yeah, maybe they're bullshitting us, but does that matter? Is it a good story? That's what we're going for. It's kind of what we always go for. But in the regular seasons, I don't know about Lakin, but I know I have skipped over things that I really wanted to do stories about that I could find virtually nothing no, on. Oh my gosh. All the yeah. time. It's really... Hauntings especially. It's, it's so annoying. There is so... It's... You know, everyone talks about how haunted this place is, but then does I don't get any like any information unless yeah. I want to read a book, which I love reading, but I don't necessarily have time to read a whole book for one episode of the podcast. Right, right. Maybe someday if we're actually making money doing this podcast, maybe that'll be a thing. Tell your friends. Where we're planning months ahead of time and we're reading books about stuff and writing stories and this is what we do full time, but that's just not the way it works for us right now. This- we're doing what we can. We are. We're doing yeah. our best. This is the probably the furthest ahead I've ever been. I'm already working on next week's. We're recording a week early, which is rare for us. We usually record the same week that the episode releases. Right now we're recording the Friday before it releases. So kudos to us. I'm patting us on the back for that. And in true me fashion, I finished my story today. And that's still a week early. I actually started it. Didn't I start it last yeah, you, week? Yeah, you started it last week when I started mine. I've, I've been avoiding it. You guys, I'll tell you a little bit more why later. <laughs> <laughs> but like I said, we're going to take some artistic liberties. We're going to do some what may sound like firsthand accounts, but are really just stories that we've written ourselves. If that's the only thing we can do, because this is about entertainment. We're here yeah. to entertain, and that's what... I want the six weeks Halloween to be fun and scary but there, and interesting. there are also facts. Yes, we're going to include the facts. We are yeah. sprinkling in facts. Yep. So, all that being said, we are also still going to cover some of the history of these communities and areas that we're covering. And... Like I said, we're throwing out some recommendations uh, rather than having two or three recommendations for certain things. We're just going to go cut it down to one to try and keep things simple. Keep it simple, stupid. Except you know? for fun things to do. I couldn't stop finding fun things to do in Salem. I already decided we're going to Halloween. we're gonna have to revisit Salem. Or actually visit. Well, yeah, I want to actually visit Salem for sure. Same. But we're going to have to revisit Salem and do another episode on it someday down the line because there's too much. I had to leave out too many things yeah, that I wanted to include. But. And I have to go hang out with my sisters. At Macy and Callie. They can come. I'm just saying my witch sisters. Because oh, okay. right now I'm in spooky, hocus pocus mood. Yeah, I get it. Okay, so now that we've got the formalities and the explanations of what the six weeks of Halloween is going to entail out of the way... Let's get into the nitty-gritty of one of the most storied and spooky cities in the United States. Salem has a very long history. It is an old town. Yeah. The Massachusetts people were the original inhabitants of the area, specifically the Naumakeg Band. The Massachusetts origin story tells of a land in the southwest where Catanet, the Great Spirit, lived. In this land, he fashioned men and women of sticks and mud and gave each of them a bow and an arrow and the seeds of the three sisters, maize, squash, beans. 
Squash. And sent them to the Northeast to find a home. Archaeologists believe that this story is likely lingering descriptions of the migrations that took place of Paleo-Indians from the southwestern United States up towards the Northeast. It is likely that the people that would become known as the Massachusetts arrived sometime around 500 CE. So a very long time ago. They were farmers and hunters who lived kind of a semi-nomadic lifestyle, but with a bit of a twist. They actually established permanent villages, but occupied them at different times of year based on weather and game patterns and stuff like that. So they would Smart. have they would have a permanent settlement on the coast that they would only live in when the freshwater clams were or or yeah, when clams were good for harvesting or whatever. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. They were likely involved in the meetings with Samuel de Champlain in 1605 and 1606, but substantial contact with the Europeans didn't begin until John Smith arrived and plotted... Oh, fucking John <laughs> <we> Smith <laughs> was a pedophile. Anyway, go on. Carrying on. <laughs> uh, when he arrived and plotted the area as that we now know as New England. From 1617 to 1619, thousands, possibly, possibly as many as 10,000, Massachusetts died in an epidemic of a bloodborne illness whose name I'm not willing to attempt to say. Okay. <laughs> Suffice to say, the people in the area were reduced to less than a quarter of their original population before colonists arrived in Salem. So, Naumakeg, which was the name of the band that inhabited the village that actually had the same name, which is where Salem is now, that name meant fishing place. So obviously this was kind of a summer encampment for the Massachusetts. And naturally, Roger Conant, the man credited with founding the city of Salem in 1626, arrived in late fall. So they weren't there when he got there. When he came ashore, the the village of Naumakeg appeared to be abandoned. So he and his men used the seemingly... uh, obsolete village as their new home. Despite arriving to their fishing grounds to find that Europeans had claimed it as their own, the Naumakeg were still kind and welcoming to the newcomers. This kind of occupation of native villages happened time and time again around Massachusetts and Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, all this area. And the indigenous peoples believed that it was little more than misunderstandings and continued to try and work with the colonizers to help them learn to build sturdy structures with the resources at hand and to cultivate the crops that were native to the area. Eventually, the Massachusetts would be caught up in King Philip's War. (gasps) No. I know. Where they were quickly gathered up and placed into prisoner of war camps on an island where disease and deplorable conditions would lead to the death of nearly all the remaining Massachusetts. This decimation of these indigenous people, despite their kindness and their conformity to English law conversion to, and conversion to Christianity, resulted in the few that were not sold into slavery or publicly executed to flee the area. European history in Salem, as I mentioned, originated in 1626, when Roger Conant and his men arrived to colonize the area. So, yeah, sorry. That kind of wraps up the Massachusetts history in that, in Salem. They fled the area after King Philip's War and basically have not really been back. 
Uh, but anyway, so Roger Conan and his men arrived in 1626. They named the area Shalem in honor of the biblical city of the same name. Conan and his successors were men of industry and Puritans. And they worked to make Salem an important Atlantic port because that was that was truly their goal. And then nothing happened of note in Salem until 1775. Just kidding. Of course, the entire happening that thrust Salem into prominence in the paranormal community and afforded it the larger-than-life stature that it enjoys in American history were, of course, the infamous Salem witch trials that lasted from 1692 until 1693. During this hysteria that gripped Salem, more than 200 people were accused of witchcraft, 30 were convicted, and 19 were executed. The trials would not draw to a conclusion until the pressing death of the greatest man in Salem's history, Giles Corey. During this procedure, boards were placed on Giles' chest and loaded with rocks. Oh. This punishment was doled out because, when accused of witchcraft, Giles Corey refused to enter a plea, knowing that it would stall the trials. So he did it on purpose, because he knew they couldn't continue with the a, trials until he pled something. I have chills yeah. right now. For two days, they added stone after stone to the boards on his chest. So much weight that his tongue was protruding from his mouth. And the local sheriff had to pr- push it back into his mouth with his cane. Oh, because we're torturing him, but it can't look like we're torturing him. It was just a hateful act by no. a hateful person. Gross. Yeah. Sick of it here. Just before his death, he was asked again to enter a plea, to which he answered, More, more rocks. Oh, more rocks. Yep. Oof. Giles's death was not a moot point because the brutal nature of it, and in fact, the illegality of it under English law, led the Massachusetts colony officials to step in and disband the, coi- the court of Oyer and Terminer, which had been conducting the trials. So what his pressing death was against the law when they did it. If this was, a, they were hysterical people doing hysterical things. Which uh, most of this, most of this. I actually don't even want to say hysteria because when you say hysteria, that discounts it as yes, as being a conscious choice. They there was zealous. there was there was a lot of hysteria going on, but the people in charge leading that hysteria were zealots. Yeah, they were hateful people using hatred to press their own religious zealotry. And then, like years later, after this, they were like, "You gotta, you gotta denounce their witch title, and you need to apologize." Mm-hmm. And it was not until the nineties. The, the 1990s, when Giles Corey was officially uh, exonerated of the crimes he was accused of. Did okay. you know that? I did not know that. I was fucking baffled. But I think it was the 1800s when they were like, yo, you gotta apologize for yeah, this. Yeah, they officially apologized in the Salem 1800s. officially apologized in like the 90s or mm-hmm. 80s or 90s. Mm-hmm. I'm like, damn, y'all really felt like you needed to do that? Good for you. <laughs> like, but also... It took you till the 1980s to do that? Well, I don't know. Like, they're probably like, dude, that they were crazy. What do you yeah. mean? We didn't yeah. do this shit. Yeah. But hey, here I am apologizing for my ancestors, so <laughs> you better apologize, Salem. So though 
the trials may be the most memorable event in Salem's history, the city is about so much more than that. We're not going to dive too deeply into the trials, but if you want to know more about one of the most influential events in all of American history, check out a podcast called Unobscured. Season one. Good. It's by Aaron Minky. It's all about the witch trials. It'll be on our uh, story highlights under pod recommendations. And listen to it. If you want to learn so much, everything about the trials. Everything that led to them, everything that happened during them, everything that happened after. And don't you dare come for Tichiba. Yeah. Tichiba did nothing wrong. Don't come don't come here looking she, for solace. Tichiba was a fucking she was a slave that did what she had to do to protect herself. Yep. So you know what? I can't even knock her for it. Nope. Absolutely not. Anyway. Anyway, not us back on our soapbox. Never. <laughs> so the first ever militia mustered by Europeans in North America took place in Salem in 1637, effectively effectively giving birth to the National Guard in 1637. That's pretty cool. I that, thought that was really cool. <laughs> that is pretty cool. <laughs> it was also almost the beginning place of the American Revolution in 1775 when English troops attempted to gain access to ammunition stored in North Salem, but and they pulled up the bridge so that the English troops couldn't cross, and it was mm-hmm. a big standoff, and mm-hmm. it was almost the start of the war. But a truce was agreed to just before the first shots would be fired a few months later. They're like, no, we're not ready. Yeah, yeah. More than 1,700 letters of mark, which were basically permissioned to operate as a privateer, were issued out of Salem, Salem meaning that 1,700 naval missions started out of the port of Salem. And these were all private boat like ship owners that decided to fight for the Americans in the revolution. So that's, I thought that was pretty interesting. It was a very vital port during the American revolution. I like it. Throughout the rest of the 17 and 1800s, Salem became one of the most important ports in the United States. And in fact, in the entire world, seamen from Salem connected the port with, with East Asia in a time long before the Panama canal and the Empress of China, became the first ship to sail from the United States to China. From, of course, the city of Salem. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. By this point, the entire world knew the name Salem. It was the sixth largest city in the United States and one of the largest ports on the face of the planet. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It's kind of weird to think about, yeah. The growth, uh, eventually the growth of cities like New York and nearby Boston overshadowed Salem. But the city holds echoes of its past in the Salem Maritime Historic Site and so many more unique places and things to do and just great, awesome stuff that there is in this city. So I can't wait to go to it. Same. When we go, where are we going to stay? Our hotel. Yes, I went for a hotel because guess oh, why? Because it's probably spooky. Freaking spooky. Yeah. Hawthorne Hotel, established in 1925 with six floors and 93 guest rooms. The hotel was named after the American writer Nathaniel Hawthorne. The restaurant located inside the hotel is called Nathaniel's Restaurant. Guests are able to dine in historic fashion for breakfast and dinner. Nice. So I'm assuming it's like a... A family-style meal where they, yeah, like, probably. put everything on the yeah. table and then you grab what you right. want. Sign me up. Yeah. 
This is also a very popular wedding venue. And an episode of the show Bewitched was filmed in the hotel. In 1990, a seance was held in the ballroom to try to contract, contract, contact <laughs> Harry Houdini. Did the Fox sisters do it? I, it was in 1990, so I highly oh, yeah, doubt that it. Yeah, yeah. Harry Houdini was one of the biggest debunkers of mediums in the world. And he always said, if it was real, he promised that he would come back and contact somebody. Yeah, that's why they came back. That's why they tried. But maybe he moved on. He, Harry Houdini had a successful life. Yeah, but his whole the whole thing he wanted to do is prove or disprove freaking... You know what? His spiteful ass probably was there for the seance. He's like, I ain't saying shit. He's like, nah. Nah. I spent my whole life telling people this was bullshit. No. I ain't about to prove myself wrong. <laughs> no. Fox sisters, canceled. Fuck yourself. The, the hotel's website tries to keep the spooky stuff under wraps, but there are plenty of spooky stories that come from the hotel. Rooms 325 and 612 is where you will find the most activity. Ghostly hands grabbing your sheets and water faucets turning on and off, and even a mysterious toilet flush. <sighs> yep. Dun, dun. You can also see the apparition of a woman in room 612. You can also smell the scent of apples floating throughout the air. It sounds wonderful. I agree. I love apples. Same. Prepare yourself for friendly hotel staff and possibly some creepy guests from the afterlife. Sign me up. (laughs) So, as I said... As this I city, live and breathe. as I live and breathe, as I said, this city is packed with history, and in my opinion, that's what you should be doing when you're recreating in Salem. Because how often are you going to visit one of the most historic cities in the entire country? Not probably that often. I do live in once was the capital of Iowa. Yeah, that's true. I mean, historical. Yeah, historic. I, I didn't choose it. I already mentioned. What I'm going to rec- recommend for... Recreate? Rec- I hate you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I already mentioned what I'm going to recommend for recreation earlier, and that is, of course, the Salem Maritime National Historic Site. This location was opened as the first ever National Historic Site by the National Park Service in 1938. This nine-acre site has 12 historic buildings and a replica of a tall ship. The Friendship of Salem is the name of the ship. Each of the buildings has its own incredibly unique past, and some are nearly as old as the city itself. The Narbonne House was built in 1675, and the Customs House, though it is the 13th iteration of the building, the eagle on top of it is referenced in the book, The Scarlet Letter. The uh, 1762 Derby House was built by the first millionaire in the New World, Captain Richard Derby. Pretty cool. Dick Derby. Old Dick Derby. And there's so many more amazing historic buildings there. The Friendship of Salem, the ship that I mentioned, is also a National Maritime Museum. So there's a ton to explore on the ship. And if you come at the right time, it still sets sail. Which is super cool. Very cool. You can learn so much about uh, Salem's history as a maritime hub, one of the largest ports on the planet. 
And an entire tour is dedicated to its connection with the slave trade, which is something that I think is very interesting and that you should take the time to learn about because we don't think about northern cities being that indelibly tied to the Atlantic slave trade. But Salem, of course, was. I mean, why wouldn't the largest port in the world be involved in Absolutely. the largest industry in the world Absolutely, at that time? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So definitely take some time to take that tour and just to visit this incredibly historic and unique place. And if you would like to learn a little bit more about it, visit nps.gov forward forward slash S-A-M-A. So, what else shall we do for fun? Oh, get ready. So, I have the Salem Witch Museum. Get a dramatic history lesson on the 1692 witch trials. They have a fun little gift shop that people on Google reviews love. And they also have, like, like, weird mannequins that are posed... In such manner that is the witch trials. The end. Oh, okay. It's okay. Kind of corny. Kind of love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The witch house of Salem, known There's as something creepy about a mannequin. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, I totally it just agree. adds to it. Yeah. Sorry, carry on. No, you're okay. The witch house of Salem, known as the Judge Jonathan Corwin's house, and one of the only houses still standing with direct ties to the witch trials. That motherfucker. <sighs> just wait. then i have count orlock's nightmare gallery this is a horror museum offering characters wax figures and masks from horror sci-fi and fantasy movies and doubles as a haunted house attraction in october nice bewitched after dark walking tours take a haunted tour through the streets of salem while learning about the haunting history this is one of many companies that do tours, so check, I mean, check them out, but check all of them out, because there's a ton. Then I have the Witch Dungeon Museum. Check out the reenactments and tours of the Witch Dungeon, where people were put while on trial in the late 1600s. Okay. And then last, but certainly not least, Salem Witch Village, an attraction that offers exhibits on witches and witchcraft. Haunted house tours and loads of souvenir shops. People often refer to this as the real life Halloween town. Oh, that's yes. why I was like, "What?" Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. All right, so now it's time to freaking eat. Finally, fuck, starving, starved. Salem is a very tourist centric area, so there's a lot of places to eat, but there's one that I'm sure Lakin specifically is gonna love. Before you say it, I know that I've recommended seafood for like the last 12 episodes or whatever, but I'll do it again. And I don't care. (laughs) And I'll love it. (laughs) I enjoy it the whole time. (laughs) And I have a really good reason this time, other than the fact that seafood is amazing. And I'm sorry if you're allergic. And we're on the East Coast? Google your own restaurant. Whatever. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Turner's Seafood is one of the best establishments in Salem with great appetizers. Appetizers. Shut up. Okay. Like bacon-wrapped scallops in their lobster half-dinner. You are sure to get New England, a a good New England seafood meal that makes you warm inside. And that's a good thing. Because the best part about the restaurant is that it's going to chill you. Turner's is located in the Lyceum. This building was designed to be a lecture, debate, and seminar hall. And when it was in use, some big names showed up. John Quincy Adams, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and even Frederick Douglass all lectured here. Freddie? 
And Alexander Graham Bell demonstrated the telephone for the first time in world history in this building. In Salem? In Salem, Massachusetts. Wow. Is that not insane? What is The first time a telephone ever rang on the face of this planet was in Salem. Was that though? I thought that I thought that he stole that from someone. No, no, no. Bell I don't think well, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think Bell stole the telephone thing. I think know. maybe I'm we, just thinking of Edison and yeah, Tesla. Yeah, we, we all kind of, uh, I know I, in my brain at least, I I uh, kind of confabulate Bell and, and Edison for some reason, and I don't know why that is. I don't. And because I don't they weren't the same person, that. and Alexander Graham Bell was actually relatively original in his creations. He didn't rip anybody off like Edison. Stole the electric Jesus from us. But anyway. <sighs> Fuck. <laughs> Fuck again. Sorry, Grandma. So, thanks to the historic and unique past of this building, it is also supposedly home to some frightening haunts. Ooh. There is serious poltergeist activity here. Boxes soar across rooms. Items rocket off of shelves. And people feel as though they're being pushed, sometimes downstairs. Oh my god, where is that ghost at my house? (laughs) What? You want to be pushed downstairs? I mean, whatever. Oh my god. Disability isn't looking too (laughs) bad right now. (laughs) Some think it may be the vengeful spirit of Bridget Bishop. Bridget? One of the young women executed in the Salem witch trials. My jaw is so ajar right now. Yeah, I love it. Keep going. Whatever the case may be, Turner's offers amazing seafood in a very haunting environment. So be sure to check them out at turnersseafood.com. So it's beer palooza time. Beer palooza time. <laughs> the, I should have done like some gospel shit. <laughs> beer palooza. No, no, that was Try too. It again. No. Try it again. No, that was too soulful. I'm gonna leave all I, this in. I gotta do like the what? Oops. I gotta do like the sad white people fearing God. <laughs> that good? That was perfect. Yeah, perfect. All of those were everything I could have ever asked for. <laughs> so the location that I'm recommending this week has a deep connection to Salem's history, both in place and name. The East Regiment Beer Company was founded by close friends Scott and Josh, who gave everything they had to build this dream, and even built the bar and tables from hand because they couldn't afford to buy any. Oh my god. The brewery is located in the first ever firehouse that was built in Salem and maintains the awesome historic look of this building. Just imagine a brick firehouse. That's what you're going into. Oh, I have goosies. Yeah, super cool. For no reason. (laughs) After waiting for five years to open, given all that they were forced to put into it, they decided to name the brewery after the very first militia to muster in the United States, the East Regiment. What? Yeah. The first ever National Guard, the East Regiment. Yeah, (laughs) super cool. And their logo is also the East Regimental flag, which includes a pilgrim. And a musket crossed over a broomstick. Yes! Is that's that what not I amazing? love about Salem! <laughs> no, they just own the witch side of things. Are you going to tell them about... The you gonna... police department has a broomstick on their fucking logo. There's, they, they own the witch side of things. You know, and it's great. the Coast Guard? Oh, yeah. The, uh, the Coast Guard thing is that I can't remember what 
detachment it is of the coach, Coast Guard, but their uh, patch is a fucking witch riding a broomstick. And that's awesome. I, the, their search and rescue detachment. Thing. I would never want to be a mass hole. No offense, Massachusetts listeners. I know there's like maybe one of you. Uh, there's a few more than that. Oh, sorry. Three of you? And I'm, <laughs> Something like that. I'm sorry. You're, I'm sure you're not all mass holes. Um, I did witness some mass holes when we were we in Massachusetts. We witnessed a lot of mass holes when we were in Massachusetts. You guys drive like dicks, and I'm not sorry about saying and that. And they aren't afraid to flip you off or just look down on you, all, man. All I did was come to a complete stop at a stop, stop sign, and I was being honked at and flipped off. Like, God for fucking bit, like, I actually hey, stopped at a stop. He's like, come on, motherfucker. I, I didn't do a Massachusetts accent. It doesn't matter. But. Hey, fuck you. And that's and I felt the, I felt that the whole time we were in Massachusetts. But it's beautiful. Yeah. No, it's God, it's, it's gorgeous. A very gorgeous state. And I know that not all of you are massholes. And if you are, that's okay. Come we're from Iowa. If you're the guy that flipped me off for stopping at a stop sign, learn how to drive. Hey, fuck right. you. Fuck you, bud. No. Anyway. I'm just kidding. So in the words of uh Scott and Josh, the logo and the name is quote, a nod to New England and its pioneer beginnings and its residents' pioneering spirit. It's also it also highlights Salem, Salem's and New England's long history, aside from that whole witch thing. <laughs> <laughs> Each of their beer names are an homage to the history of the region, or simply uh, to elicit a chuckle like Pierce Brownsnin, a brown ale, and Schrodinger's cat, a Vienna lager. Stop. <laughs> That's the best. They're wonderful. Aside from their unique beers that carry on the New England beer legacy, they have live music occasionally and a fantastic patio that is pet-friendly, so it'll be a great place to bring Stella on a crisp October evening in Salem. Bitch! As we prepare to tell some haunting tales. So check them out at eastregimentbeercompany.com. And with that, we're going to take a quick break and get ready for the first story. Back from the break, using some uh, some different sounds when it comes to uh, transitioning from story to story. So that'll be interesting. Lakin hasn't even heard those yet. I didn't know. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah, they're fun little things that I found. Again, I will link them, the original uh, locations of them. They're all on freesounds.org, which is a fantastic resource. They'll use the Creative Commons license. I highly recommend it. They're not paying me to say this. It's a fantastic site. A lot of open source material. A lot of great people that that put their work, their hard work up for no charge. All you have to do is credit them for it. And they do some great work. Some great people do some great work on there. And I'm so thankful for it existing because it gave me the opportunity to create some very interesting sounds for this special season. So anyway. We are starting the first fun story of, of the six weeks of Halloween. Lakin gets to lead us out. She's got a haunting, and I'm so ready. I'm so ready to hear it. I'm dying to hear it. You guys. She's nervous. I don't do creative writing. She's not a creative writer. I'm a factual no. gal. I love facts. Especially when it comes to, like, my podcast. <laughs> But anyway, I also want I you also, guys to know. I, also want, I want you guys to know that I told her she can do this any way that she wants. I was trying. Listen, being married means 
You make some sacrifices. I didn't ask you to sacrifice anything. Sometimes (laughs) you just want to make your husband happy. He does a lot for you. I would have been happy either way. I don't know why you feel like you (laughs) need to stand up for yourself right now. I was just trying to do a nice thing. I love you and I I thank you for that. But I want you to know you can write any of your stories however you want to write them. Well, bet. I don't know. Well, I, whatever. I just want you guys to know that. The hops in my beer was from El Dorado, and this is what's keeping me going. Okay? She had me proofread part of this story, and I think it was fantastic. I liked it, and I'm ready to hear the whole thing. So Next week, it's about facts. You hear me? I mean, this has facts in it, but next week, it's all facts. F-A-X-T. Faxed. <laughs> anyway. Karen. I named this the Salem Witch House. Ooh. And my Moira voice. And we've all talked, We you talked about the Salem Witch House in your recommendation, right? I did, okay. yes. This is one of the oldest buildings in the city with ties to the Salem the Witch Trials. As I stepped out of my rental car, I took a deep breath of the crisp autumn breeze. The sun shining through the orange and yellow leaves brings some peace to my anxious mind. It's been too long since I've been to the East Coast, and even longer since I could even fathom going back there again. Salem has a troubled past, a past that many know, but today the streets are filled with people laughing and dancing without any fear. Shops are full of healing stones, dried herbs, and dusty books. Shops that embrace the crafts that were once so harshly scorned. It made this old witch's heart happy. No, I wasn't there for pleasure. I went to Salem to tie up some loose ends. You see, the last time I was in Salem was a few years ago. Well, a hundred, a few hundred years ago. I settled there long ago, ventured over from England. I hadn't intended on making a voyage, but the witch's teen years really are the hardest. (laughs) I had drowned my sorrows in a pint glass or twelve. And I woke up the next morning and realized I was on a ship with a bunch of bright-eyed yuppies set out to plant their seeds far across the sea. (laughs) I stopped by a French bakery I passed earlier that day. Caramel French Patisserie. The job I had ahead of me, I was going to need a pound of sugar for my nerves. I had left abruptly the last time I was in Salem. I couldn't bear to watch the torture of the innocent people. I was a baby witch then, trying to find the path that fit me. I had only enough power to protect myself, so I ran like a coward far away from the Puritans, but not before accidentally putting a curse on a man and his home. Jonathan Corwin was a man of God, but I wouldn't call him a good man always pointing a finger at some woman who spoke up about the mistreatment of others or just her mind. He questioned the accused in his basement. Who knows what all the men, women, and children went through down there. When I learned about the aberrant treatment of the accused, the hanging, stoning, pressing, and burning, I lost my cool. I've never felt so sure of anything in my life when I yelled, You deserve what you have dealt, Jonathan Corwin. I didn't realize that I could curse anyone. I hadn't cursed just anyone either. 
I have cursed the second in command of the witch trials of Salem. I grabbed my patisserie and ate it anxiously as I walked to my car. I had put this off for long enough. It was time to go back to Salem Witch House. The witch house was better known as the Corwin residence during the time of the witch trials. Jonathan Corwin and his family lived there long ago. It holds the title of the witch house now because the accused were interrogated and tortured in the basement before their trials. Today, I will break the curse I placed so many years ago. I said, not knowing exactly what I was walking into. I drove in silence, going over my strategy. I hadn't meant to place a curse in the first place, so I wasn't terribly sure how I would break it. I only found out about it a few months back. I was binging ghost adventures when they traveled to the Salem Witch House. (laughs) To my surprise, they mentioned the Corwin curse, and my blood ran cold. Five of the Corwin children died in that house, all within a few years, and eventually two more would die along with Jonathan and his wife Elizabeth. The Corwin legacy crumbled, but the house still stood, tall, dark, and eerie. High infant mortality was common then, but I still couldn't help but feel a little responsible. I pulled up to the old house and took a deep breath. This wasn't going to be easy. I needed to talk to the spirits there that were full of unrest. If I couldn't break the curse, maybe I could at least help some souls cross over. The plan was simple. I was going to wing it. (laughs) Walking up the old building, I could feel the sadness that hung over the house like a dark cloud. This wasn't going to be fun. At least 19 people were doomed in that basement. Doomed to a death that was unjust and barbaric. Laws would be passed later to make sure this never happened again. One judge and several jurors apologized for the terrible acts they had committed, but Jonathan Corwin stood silent. Mm -hmm. Somehow, all the information of what happened during the witch trials was gone. Burnt up in some accidental fire or misplaced. The names of the innocent men, women, and children would ultimately be cleared of the title witch and given proper burials. I slid a bobby pin out of my hair and picked the lock of the front door. I snuck into the house unnoticed, not a muggle in sight. I stood quietly at the front door and breathed in the house. Centuries had passed, yet it still looked so familiar. I started to feel very dizzy, which is no surprise. Most people touring the house will witness that in at least one of the rooms. My body started feeling very heavy, but I kept going. I started walking through what looked like the kitchen when I felt a small cold presence on my leg, clinging to it like a child wanting to ride on someone's foot. I patted the cold spot as though it was a child's head, and I heard the child say, Hello. I told the small voice that they shouldn't be scared. It's all right to move on. There's a much greater place than this. Slowly, the cold air dissipated. 
Was that the soul of the four-year-old girl accused of witchcraft? An overwhelming feeling of peace passed over me, and I hoped that she had moved on. I caught my eyes wandering to a children's doll, and I walked over to investigate. The doll was believed to be hexed, but I knew better. The zealots called this a poppet, or a tool to curse young girls and their family. But in my mind, it was just a doll. It had no energy attached, so I kept moving. I passed an old shoe they had found on the wall while renovating, believed to ward off evil spirits. But silly mortals, condemning witchcraft, but using one of our rituals to keep us away? (laughs) They even had a few witch bottles stowed away, full of urine and pens. Urine. To stop evil in its tracks and to bind the witch to the bottle. I had to stop my eyes from rolling. (laughs) As I walked throughout the house, I felt a little something here and there, but never anything overwhelming. If I had cursed the Corman family, surely their souls would still be attached to this house, reliving their last days over and over. Yet, every room I ventured in upstairs was quiet. There was a cold spot here and there, but nothing that I could fix. So it was time. I had to go down to the basement, the floor of the house I was dreading. I found myself staring at the basement door, dreading what it had in store for me. Guilt washed over me. Guilt for the lives that had been condemned in that basement. The lives that I might have been able to save if I had tried hard enough. But it wasn't the time for a pity party. It was time to take this curse away from this house. So I descended the stairs. My nerves were tangled up in knots. The energy in the air felt dark and the feeling of being overwhelmed, terrified, and hopeless hit me before the basement smell did. My limbs felt like they weighed a hundred pounds each, but I kept going. I neared the end of the stairs to find several spirits there, some listlessly staring at the wall, others weeping, and a few praying. I tried to explain to the ghosts that they were free to go, They no longer had to live in this wretched old house. It was almost like they couldn't hear me. I had come into my clairvoyant abilities in the 1800s, even made a nickel off the corners of busy streets in big cities. Sure, I may have been a little rusty, but something wasn't adding up. I walked toward the old metal bars of the old jail cell when the little girl I had spoken to earlier came to me. She held her finger to her mouth in a shh and pointed to the corner. All the years that had been since I had visited that old town couldn't have prepared me for the fright I got looking into those cold black eyes. There in the dark corner of the basement stood John Corwin himself, and he didn't look tortured. No, He looked like he was enjoying every bit of his afterlife he had made for himself. Torturing these poor spirits day after day, like a twisted version of Groundhog's Day with no Bill Murray. There we stood, making intense eye contact, but he wouldn't say anything to me. Probably couldn't lower himself to talk to an old witch like me. He was angry. 
I could feel his vicious spite flowing throughout the room. Now, the ghosts lifted their eyes while keeping their heads down, looking between the devilish figure in the corner and myself. Go on, Jonathan, I said. Be with your family and let these people move on. The smile that reached his face, however, was not comforting. He cocked his head in an unnatural way and the lights went out. I scrambled for my phone, all while yelling, Okay, Google, turn on the flashlight. A soft glow illuminating my purse was all I needed. I grabbed my phone, some candles, and a lot of salt. When you've been around as long as I have, you've always come prepared for the worst. I started pouring salt all around me in a big circle for protection. I then lit candles and sat them down accordingly. You are not welcome in this house, Jonathan Corwin. This is no longer your home, and I banish you. I began to feel nauseous, but I wasn't going to let him win. The spirits walked towards me, but it looked like it was against their will. Was he controlling them? Is this why they had never left? I started chanting a banishing spell, and the ghosts kept getting closer and trying to break through my barrier. Their eyes sad and full of remorse. Luckily, Jonathan had no clue how my world of magic worked, although I think he started to catch on. The temperature started dropping and steam rolled out of my mouth as I kept on with my incantation. A slight breeze picked up, trying to blow my protection circle, but it wouldn't budge. Jonathan had become powerful over the years, preying on the innocent and leeching what little souls they had left but I had also grown stronger. I thought of every single person that was in prison in that basement, and for each of them, I said the verse a little bit louder and with more feeling. I envisioned a white light surrounding me and held it around me. As I finished the last of my banishing spell, I envisioned the white smashing into Jonathan Corwin's chest and sending him where the sun don't shine. An awful keening sound came out of the terrible man in the corner as he slowly disappeared. The ghosts around me realized that their evil captor had left. No longer could he control or torture them. Their eyes softened, and I told them to be with their families. I said a little prayer for them, and when I looked up, they all had gone. The temperature in the room rose and the awful heavy feeling disappeared. I made one more trip around the house just to make sure I hadn't missed anyone. As I walked to the door, I felt the, that tiny presence on my leg again. This time I knelt down to the little girl's level. Be free, little one. It's time to leave this dreary house and be with your loved ones. I felt the pressure of the little girl leave my leg and I heard a small, thank you. Turns out there was no curse. Well, no curse that I had placed. Just an angry old man, plagued by his cruel judgment, unwilling to let go. I patted myself on the shoulder. I had done what I needed to for that day. On my way out of town, I stopped by Carmel French Patisserie one more time. Who knew the next time I'd be in Salem again? Now that 
the so-called Corwin's curse was taken care of, I might be back sooner than I thought. For now, I have other loose ends to tie up in different cities. But as I drove past the Salem Welcome sign on my way out, I thought I might have seen a ghostly figure leaning up against it. But that ghost would have to wait for another day. I don't know why you think you're not a creative writer. Because that was fucking fantastic. I felt like it was rushed even though it took me a week. That was fantastic. Was it? That was a great story. I bar- I barely reacted to most of The only parts I actually reacted to were the ones I had already read when I was proofreading for you. And from that point forward, once that stopped, you notice how I was dead fucking silent? All I could do was listen to this story because it was so good. I thought you were bored. No, it was fantastic. I was enthralled. Oh, I'm glad. That was so good. <laughs> Thanks. Damn. That was a great story. And of course, a lot of that is based on these tales from the the Corwin house, from yes. the witch house. The, yeah. Like the few firsthand accounts that I could right, find. And right. I was like, well, we're going to build off of that. Yeah. I, I was assuming that those most of that, yeah. this creative story was based around that. That was that was wonderful. I don't know why you think you can't create a bright, because that was so good. You read so many fantasy stories, I don't know how you would think that you couldn't write creatively. Because you you nailed it. But fantasy, I want to read that. That was fantasy. I know. And that was good. That was fantasy based on fact. That was so good. Thank you. You're welcome. That's I my love shit. you. That was wonderful. Gosh, we got to take a break. I'm going to need another beer and then we'll come back and hopefully I can live up to that. Oh my God, don't even. I know yours is going to be good. Okay, so we're back from the break and we're moving into a cryptid with my story. Yeah. I'm excited. Bear with me doing some stuff that I've never done before, so we're going to try it. We're going to see how it goes. Okay. The title of the story is They Are Watching. Oh, I have goosebumps already. When the first Europeans came to Salem, the forests stood tall. The Wampanoag and the other nations of the area lived in commune with that forest. They revered it. They respected it. Sometimes they feared it. After all, it is the most primal of human instincts to fear that which we have so little knowledge of, and the forest is amongst those things that we know the least about. The people of Turtle Island knew that the forest held great value while hiding terrifying secrets. Every nation of the continent has their own stories about the protectors of the deep woods, and they come in so many forms. But the creatures that defend the forest of the Northeast may be the most fearsome. Long ago, the woodland defenders were betrayed by humans, and while some were still helpful at times, they learned their lesson. To protect their homes, they mustn't allow the humans free reign. As Europeans came to Salem, the newcomers determined that Colonizing the area ran hand-in-hand with taming the thick woods on the north side of the bay. Though they may have held their own stories about spirits and beings living in the forests of Europe, 
The colonists were nothing if not fearless. To build their homes, docks, and other structures, lumber was needed. And the warnings of the First Nations about the ramifications of taking from the forest without permission fell on deaf ears. In 1630, William Noddle arrived, a freed man, to build a new life. He was a young man full of enterprise and possibly misplaced bravery. Noodle, as his friends called him, had set about the task of building a home and a business on the shores of the Massachusetts Bay, near the mouth of the South River. This was the perfect place for his entrepreneurial plans, providing him inland river access to the thick woods of the new colony and to the ocean for trade. As Noodle set about the task of building his business, and that of helping other colonists build theirs, he made regular trips into the interior of Massachusetts to log and mill lumber to bring back to the colony. Most mornings he would set out in his canoe and head upstream to begin his work cutting down trees and shaping them for use in the town. One spring morning in 1632, though, would be very different than the others. As Noodle set up his equipment in the deep wooded area a few miles from the village, something just seemed off. The flowers that were blooming in the nearby clearing seemed unnaturally sweet, and he couldn't shake the feeling that someone was watching him. As he sat his bag of tools on the ground, Noodle heard a quiet but distinct sound of something scurrying across the edge of the woods. Partly out of concern for his safety and partly due to his lack of willingness to pass up a potential meal, Noodle grabbed his musket and carefully made his way to the edge of the woods, keeping his eyes peeled for wildlife that may have caused the commotion. As he strode into the thicker parts of the forest, he heard another scurrying, this time from behind him, and a metallic clanking. He spun on his heel, aiming his gun towards the clearing from which he had came. There was nothing there. But his tool bag was overturned. Oh. Noodle made his way back towards the bag in an attempt to figure out what had knocked it over. He arrived there, still scanning the edges of the clearing, and as he grasped it with one hand, he discovered that the satchel, once full of tools, was now completely empty. What in the Lord's name, he mumbled. With only his saw, he could fell trees, but working them into manageable pieces of lumber to bring back to Salem would be impossible. Confused and frustrated that someone had obviously snuck in and stole his tools, Noodle decided to fell a few trees and loaded up his canoe and returned to the town, woodless. The following morning, he grabbed some replacement tools and began paddling back to the clearing. It would be simple. Now that he already had several downed trees, he could make quick work of them, and maybe bring down a few more before heading back to the village. But nothing would be simple on that spring day. Noodle arrived at his clearing and stood stunned. The trees he had brought down the previous afternoon were gone, as though he'd done Nothing the day before. He dropped his bag, pushed up his buckle hat, and rubbed his forehead in confusion, leaning against his musket. 
I know I fell no fewer than four trees yesterday. Whoever took my tools must have poached my lumber as well. Angered by this betrayal of a fellow member of his community, or possibly a native, Noodle knew he couldn't waste much time lamenting. He grabbed his axe and gun and set towards the trees at the edge of the clearing. Just as he was about to swing his axe at the first tree he was going to fell for the day, that same scurrying sound came from behind him, where his bag lay. He dropped the axe and snagged his musket, swinging it around and pointing into the clearing. Again, nothing was there but his overturned satchel. In the name of the Lord who goes there. Still pointing the gun and scanning the clearing, he inched his way towards the bag. Whoever is stealing my tools and pilfering my logs, make yourself known. I've come by those tools honestly, and the lumber is the fruit of my labor. You've no right to take them from me, he yelled into the empty clearing. I'm loving these accents, by the way. I love it. (laughs) Keep going. As he arrived beside his, again, empty bag, the tree line rustled from exactly where he'd been. Noodle swung back around, and as some unseen being shot into the brush, the lathe that had once been in his tool bag fell to the ground at the edge of the clearing. I've seen you this time, and by all that is holy, I'll strike you down while you stand. He hadn't seen him, though. But they didn't need to know that. Staring down the barrel of his musket, he felt himself shaking. Noodle knew he wasn't alone, but he had no idea who or what was there with him. Suddenly, the scurrying and rustling of bushes seemed to be coming from all sides of him. He errantly swung the musket from left to right and back to center, unsure of what he should be aiming at or where the being, or possibly beings, were. From the corner of his eye, he saw a small creature dart from one tree to the next on his far left. He whirled around and fired his gun. Now, in modern times, that might not mean as much as it did then. You see, that shot was the only one he had until he underwent the laborious process of reloading the single-shot musket. Noodle instantly realized that his shot had missed its mark. He rapidly grabbed for the satchel that he kept over his shoulder, which held all he needed to reload his gun. But it was gone. How was that possible? He grabbed at his waist for the powder horn that he kept there. It, too, was gone. What? How in the... Before he could get his words of bewilderment out, a being appeared next to Noodle's discarded axe. At its head, the creature wouldn't have cleared the knee of a man. It was covered from head to toe in matted, shaggy gray hair, save for its pot belly and dark-skinned face sporting a bulbous nose, sharp black eyes, and rodent-like teeth. Sounds kind of (laughs) cute. The little thing held what Noodle was sure the being perceived as a staff in one hand, though it would have appeared to be little more than a thick twig to even most children. Oh my god. That's so cute! (laughs) I can't even handle it! (laughs) I just want to give him like a little kiss. In the creature's other hand was Noodle's powder horn. The wee thing stood hunchbacked, staring into Noodle's eyes. 
It looked to be an old man, but was smaller than most children. Noodle did not know what he was looking at. This is how I feel every morning when I get to work. Like, <laughs> that's what I'm sure I look like, but I'm tall, so... Stop it. Anyway. In his panic and haste, the colonist stumbled backwards and fell to the ground. What do you want from me? The little man, at least Noodle assumed it was a man, looked at the powder horn in its right hand, then back at the frightened human in the center of the clearing, and tossed the horn off into the woods behind it. The creature then took a step forward, with its fur-covered spindly legs, each bearing a three-toed foot at the end. As it stepped closer, Noodle pushed himself a little bit further away, despite the creature apparently needing the minuscule walking stick to move stably, giving him the appearance of a small woolen merlin. He still didn't know what it was capable of. The little man moved the stick in front of him, apparently settling into a resting position, and raised his right hand, pointing a fuzzy little finger tipped with fingernails as sharp as a door tack at Noodle. You, Noodle? The small being asked in a harsh, gravelly voice. I... what? How do you know my name? Yes, Noodle, the creature said with a satisfied smile on its face. It turned the same finger to its own chest and said, I, Greemund. Greemund? Noodle puzzled. Is that your name? The little man nodded in confirmation. Have you taken my tools, Greemond? Again, the being nodded. You've no right to take them, for they are mine. Noodle's words poured seemingly out of, con- out of his control. Nor do you have the right to take the wood I- No! Greemond snapped with a voice much louder than he should have been able to muster. Wood not yours. Not mine. Not nobody's he retorted firmly. Who are you to make such a claim? Greeman smiled a sly little smile. I, Pukwaji. They, Pukwaji. The little man pointed around the clearing and the edge of the woods filled with more shapes. Though they were all nearly the same height, save for a half an inch here and there, They varied in color from dark black to golden brown to nearly blonde. Their build made it apparent that the rest were much younger and more spry than Greemond. Rather than pot bellies and spindly legs, apparently strong arms held bows at the ready. Stout legs braced some in stances preparing to throw the spears that they held. And strong abs showed through the bead-adorned flowing locks making it clear that they were the warriors, and Greemond was the wise elder. On the backs of the young ones, Noodle noticed something he had not seen on the old man facing him. They were adorned with the spines of porcupines, but not as decorations. They were growing from within their fur. The fear that the man had once felt with just one strange creature standing in front of him was amplified tenfold as now a dozen or more surrounded him, seemingly in preparation to kill. Tree, protect Pukwaji. Pukwaji, 
protect, tree, the elder said, now grasping his staff with both hands and smiling kindly as he looked at the nearest tree to him. As Greemond looked back at Noodle, his expression changed. Now sporting a look of irritation bordering on anger, he said, Noodle killed tree. You cut and carve and call tree property. Noodle managed to bring himself to his feet, watching all of the beings as, as he did. They seemed less intimidating now that he was at his full human height, but that didn't change the fact that they were pointing weapons at him, albeit small ones. Give me my belongings and I will leave this place. You shall never be bothered by me again. Though he meant these words, and he had no intentions of returning to this clearing, Lumber was the lifeblood of the community. So he would find a new place and fell the necessary trees, and hopefully these things would not be there. Greeman shook his head. This lie. You come back to kill more tree. You never stop killing tree. We must have lumber for our village. If you will not give me my tools, I will come back with more tools and more men and take what we need, Noodle said defiantly. With that statement, the little creatures around the clearing erupted in chatter, some language that Noodle didn't know. They seemed to be prepared to kill him on the spot. Greeman raised a single bony hand and silence fell over the beings. This bad thing to say. He paused a moment, closed his knowing eyes, and turned his tiny face to the blue sky. Noodle no come back. Pakwaji make sure of that. The mood in the clearing changed. It had been tense from the start, but now it was foreboding. Noodle took this cue and ran. He sprinted back the way he'd come. Tiny arrows whizzed past him and one even struck his arm. Spears not larger than twigs stuck in the ground on all sides of him, snapping off as he ran through them. He knew all he had to do was outrun the wee things and get to his canoe. He would never return alone. That much was decided. He barreled towards the river, and just before the surprisingly fast creatures arrived on the shore, he paddled with all of his might, aided by the current of the South River. As minuscule arrows and spears splashed in the water behind him, Noodle let out a sigh of relief. He'd gotten away. Back on the shore, the horde of angered Pukwudgies fired a final few arrows, for naught, as the human's canoe was far out of range. After a few moments, Greemond arrived to stand beside the others. In their native tongue, a gaily adorned, brown-furred Pukwudgie turned to the elder and said in frustration, We cannot let him get away. You know his intentions. The Paleskins will come back with more men and more axes. I do, Greemond sighed. He will not see his village again. With that, the elder handed his knotted staff to the frustrated warrior and rubbed his bony hands together. He uttered a few words in a language that even the others had no knowledge of and leapt into the air, diving for the river. Before his tiny figure could hit the water, the wise old Pukwudgie transformed into a large silver river otter and Ooh. sped towards the disappearing canoe. Ooh, <laughs> I chills.
Noodle was still shaken, but now rode a bit more steadily, confident the creatures were far behind him. From his right, though, he caught a glint of silver and peered into the water. Just then, a shiny silver otter surfaced, furry arms tucked across its chest as it glided through the river on its back. It was one of the largest otters the man had ever seen, and as he made eye contact with it, somehow he knew this was no ordinary otter. The eyes were ink-like, and its expression told him somehow this was Greement. Before he could even react, Otter Greemond crashed into the side of the canoe using all four limbs to push with all of his might. It lurched and the paddle fell over the side. Noodle braced himself and cried, What unnatural beast are you? The otter did not answer. It simply threw itself into the canoe again and overturned it. Greemond circled the now flailing human. He knew the pale skins could not swim. And though he took no joy in killing, he was satisfied that the forest was safe. For now. This story is based on historic events. It's an amalgamation of some old legends of the Pukwaji and of person who actually lived and died in Salem. William Noddle was a real person, and he did die in 1632 in a canoe accident. Noodle. Noodle. And his friends actually called him Noodle. We know this for a fact. Much like their European cousins, the fairies and the gnomes, the Pukwudgie are forest spirits, guardians of the woods. They range across the northeast to the Great Lakes and up into the Cree land around the Hudson Bay. Many cultures have their own stories about little creatures that hunt in, live in, and protect the woods. We have even told these stories before. The Narumbe. Yeah. That's what I was thinking the whole time. That's so funny that you said that. The Narumbe, though, were never kind to humans. Much like the First Nations around Salem, the Pukwaji were once friends with humans. Occasionally playing pranks, but generally harboring kindness and providing help to the nations that they lived beside. Their incredible powers made them invaluable as allies. They smelled of fresh wildflowers and were some of the best archers and hunters on all of Turtle Island. They could become invisible at a whim, and some could even transform into animals to disguise themselves. Most importantly, they never took more from the forest and the land than they needed to survive. The forest hid their villages and protected them from those who might cause them harm. One day long ago, the humans betrayed the trust of the Pukwudgie, and from that day forward, the beings vowed to avenge this wrong. They stole children who wandered too far into the forest and killed anyone who attempted to hurt them. Some nations preserved their relationship with the creatures, but the white man was no friend to them. Months after the death of Noodle, some Salem villagers made their way to the clearing where Greemond had showed himself to the man. With them, they brought an Algonquin woman who guided them safely to the strong trees that could be felled for construction in the town. As they arrived in the place, the native woman halted near the tree line. She reached to the ground and pulled a rusty axe from the brush. 
She carefully examined it and glanced up into the trees. She inhaled deeply, taking the strong, sweet smell of wildflowers in and turned to the paleskins. This place will not do. We'll find another, she uttered. Stepping to the nearest tree, the eldest villager placed his hand on its trunk and pushed slightly into it and asked, Why would you say such a thing? These are sturdy trees. They would do well for lumber. She pointed to the branch above the man and stated matter-of-factly, It is not safe. The Pakwaji, they are watching. The group of Salemites turned their gaze to the branch above their leader, where the woman had pointed. Above them, a silver squirrel stared at the men, piercing their souls with his ink-black eyes. Oh, shit. I love that. Yeah? Yeah, I'm so glad you went after me. Whatever. Thank Your story God. was so good. Ooh, I'm glad that was... I'm glad you liked that story. That, of course, is the story of the Pukwaji. The Pukwajis, as we know them now. Uh, yes. There's a lot of other stories about Pukwaji. There's some more modern stories. There's an episode of Lore that talks about the Pukwaji... There's some show on Amazon Prime that I can't remember what it is. Was where it they Discovery talk about Plus? I think so, yeah. I don't know, but these are, of course, little forest creatures that protect the woods. They're teeny tiny little things. Sorry. And they are a cryptid of Massachusetts. I took a, a few liberties because they're not really reported as being that close to Salem. Yeah. So, I, like I said, I kind of used uh, a factual human who actually existed, died in a canoe accident while bringing lumber back to Salem, William Noddle, a.k.a. Noodle, Noodle. which Lakin wants to be her new nickname. I, listen, it's a great name. <laughs> I have plenty of names, but Noodle isn't one. <laughs> And your story was fantastic. The witch house story was so good. Thank you. I got chills so many times. Thank you. I hope everyone enjoyed this story. This, hopefully this week, will give you guys a little bit of an understanding of what the stories are going to be like in the six weeks of Halloween. Because that's the goal, is to give you some great stories that send some chills down your spine. And also help you learn a little bit about the lore and legends of this amazing country that we live in. Absolutely. With that being said, Salem isn't too far from any highway because it's like, you throw a rock from Boston and hit Salem. Yeah. And when you're there, I know that you are going to meet some truly amazing people. You are going to drink some really good beer. You need some fantastic New England seafood. You might find some little, you know, like forest creatures. You might even see some ghosts or a witch and hopefully... These are the places you'll go. 